Saving Private Ryan is an epic uh, Hollywood war film set during the invasion of Normandy in World War II. It follows the story of Captain John H. Miller, who's played by Tom Hanks, and his squad as they search for a paratrooper uh, by the name of Private James Ryan. Ryan is the last survivor of four brothers. The other three have been killed in action. And the army had a policy to protect the remaining members of a family that had already lost some family members. Now, this film is, is a very powerful, very gritty depiction of the horrors of war. It's got blood splattering onto the camera and all sorts of things. But it's equally powerful in its portrayal of a core value on which most people base their lives. At the end of the film, Miller, Tom Hanks, is wounded and he's dying and he knows the end has come. And he's sitting there propped up against this tank. And he's led this search for, for, Captain, for, for Private Ryan with incredible bravery and sacrifice and heroism. And many lives have been lost and sacrifices have been made to get this guy Ryan back safe to his family. And as he lies dying, he speaks to the young soldier, uh, J Private Ryan, and he looks him in the eye and he whispers with his dying breath, James... Earn this, earn it. And the music swells, as it always does in Hollywood films. And before your eyes, young Matt Damon ages, and he becomes an older man in his 60s or 70s. And he's now standing in a vast military graveyard as an old man. And this place is full of these white crosses that, as far as the eye can see, but he's, he's looking at one of them. And an older lady, who you assume is his wife, comes up to his side and says, are you okay? And he, she looks over his shoulder and looks at the cross, and it says on the grave marker, Captain James Miller. She wonders what's going on, and Ryan turns to her, and he says very deeply, tell me I've led a good life. What? Tell me I'm a good man. And she looks deep into his eyes and says, you are. Have I earned it? Have I lived a good life? That is how most people live their lives. And that is how most religion works. You do your best. You live a good life. And you earn God's favor. But you know what? That message, that kind of effort, is a deeply, deeply flawed way to live. Earning it. Trying to live a good life is actually a recipe for pride, a recipe for self-justification, and a recipe for failure. If you're striving to earn the right for good things, then when you think you've earned them, you're proud. But you can't keep it up for long because we all fail and sin in so many ways, so you become defensive and angry and self-justifying. And because you think you're earning all the good things that come to you, you're harsh and critical of other people who don't live up to your standards. You'll be inclined to write people off who you think haven't tried hard enough or haven't earned it because you've tried so very, very hard to get where you are. So you see, this core value, I've got to earn it, is deeply, deeply flawed and ultimately it is fruitless. Earn it? Be a good man? How could you live a life that was good enough? This is the way that most people live. And the message is, do. You've got to do more and more. But there is another way. And it's the polar opposite of do. It's called the gospel 
or the good news. And its message is not do, but done. Done. John chapter 1 is a beautiful summary of this gospel message. We've been uh, hanging around in this chapter of John for the last few weeks. And if what I say today seems somewhat familiar to most of you who are Christians, that's because it should be. Because John gives us an outline of the gospel, the good news here. The German reformer Martin Luther once wrote that the gospel is the central article of the Christian faith. Most necessary is it that we learn it well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Now, why do we need to beat this gospel into our heads continually? Because we don't really believe it. We don't really get it. Our heads and our hearts instinctively turn back to the old way, the old self-justifying way, which is at the root of most religion and is actually at the root of the secular vision of life. They all say, do, and you will live. The gospel says, Jesus has done it. Now you can live. There's two completely different approaches to the world. Not do, but done. So I want to remind you today of three simple things. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why Jesus came. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why Jesus came. Who Jesus is. The first thing we learn in John is that he is God the Son. He's God the Son. First thing we learn from John is actually the, about the awesome, amazing, incredible grandeur of Jesus of Nazareth. Back in verse 1, John introduces this mysterious person who he calls the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, your words and my words are, are part of us, aren't they? They're part. You, can, you form them in your head, and you speak them with your mouth, and you can feel them coming out of, of your tongue, and you can feel your breath coming out when your words emerge. They are part of you. But our words also have a kind of a life of their own, don't they? Sometimes we regret this. You ever said something that you wish you could take back, but it was out, and it came back to bite you later? Once those words are out of your mouth... They have a life of their own. They actually have power to create situations. You ever heard any words like these? I love you. Now those words have the power to create a situation, don't they? What about the words, you're fired? Now if you get I love you and you're fired in the same sentence, you've got a complicated life. John starts by describing Jesus as the word through whom God created everything that has been made. Now notice the word himself wasn't ever created. He's always been with God. In fact, John takes us back to the earliest point of the Bible and then goes before that. He goes even before the dawn of creation. And he says right back then, before anything was made, before hydrogen and helium and atoms and stars and galaxies, there was a time when there was only God. And this word was there. And in the simplest and most profound statement possible, John says the word was with God and he was God. So Jesus, the eternal son of God, has always existed before time and space. He's always been with God and he always was God. The Quran says, people of the book, that means Christians, people of the book do not exceed the limits of devotion in your religion 
or say anything about God which is not the truth. Jesus, son of Mary, is only a messenger of God, his word, and a spirit from whom he conveyed to Mary. Do not say there are three gods. It is better for you to stop believing in the Trinity. There is only one God. He is too glorious to give birth to a son. Well, we do agree on one thing. There are not three gods, that's right. There is only one. But our understanding of God is radically, totally different to that which we find there in the Quran. The nature of our God is unique. He is unlike any other being. His nature is triune. He is a triunity. Three persons in one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, but in one being. There never was a time when the Son was not. There never was a time when the Spirit was not. They have lived together forever in a harmony of love and joy. The three-in-one God is a supremely happy being. And he created the universe to share his happiness, to share his love and the joy of his life with other creatures who were made to be like him. That is why we are wired for love and joy and community, and we search for it desperately. And that's the rich reality behind one of the verses that Joshua just read. Look with me, will you, at verse 18. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, the original language here is so intimate. It literally says, in the bosom of the Father. In the bosom of the Father. We don't use the word bosom very often. There was a song a few years ago that had the refrain, everyone needs a bosom for a pillow. We don't use this very often. What is going on? The same word occurs later on in John chapter 13. Jesus is at a meal, and he's very troubled And he predicts that one of his followers is going to betray him. And the disciple, there's one disciple who's called the one that Jesus loved, especially close friend. He uh, leans back against him and he asks, who's going to betray you? And you see, the reason he, he could lean on his bosom is that they were so close together. Now, dining in the ancient world is a bit different to the way we eat. We're all sitting at the table on our chair upright, knife and fork. These guys are sort of lounging around, semi-reclining. It's the kind of thing I always tell our kids not to do. It's just a different sort of intimacy that's possible between men without any sexual connotations. Maxim, our friend who gave us the missions moment earlier on, once told me, as we were walking together through Moss Side, that in his culture it was appropriate for men to hold hands while they were walking down the street. So I said, shall we do it? And he backed away. I don't know why. I think you've been Europeanized or something. See, you can do these things. It shows close intimacy and deep friendship. So John chapter 1, that this one and only son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship in the bosom of the Father has always been in the deepest, most intimate relationship. But he's also God. He's God. And that means he's glorious. Verse 14, we have seen his glory. The glory as of a one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now this book is written by people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, particularly by one of his closest followers. 
an eyewitness of Jesus' glory. And he says here, we saw it. We saw his glory. And throughout John, we're going to see this coming up again and again. In chapter 2, there's a famous uh, story often preached on at weddings where Jesus changes water into wine at a wedding. Many couples have prayed for that to happen since. not been repeated as far as I know. He changes water into wine and it says his disciples saw his glory and they put their faith in him. What does glory mean? I think it means here a visible and a powerful appearance of God. A visible, powerful appearance of God. You see, seeing God for who he is. Now in Matthew, Mark and Luke which are uh, three books that are called the Synoptic Gospels, they see together, there's a special event on a mountain. Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his closest followers, and God speaks from heaven. And Jesus is, is kind of made really bright and shining, so much so they can barely look at him, and he's glorified in their presence. And, and it's this moment where they really see Jesus for who he is. But in John, there's no record of that. John actually says, we saw his glory all the way through. It was it was streaked through like sunlight shining through on a dawn morning. We could see his glory even in his ordinary life. And even, he says, at the cross, we saw Jesus' glory. We saw a powerful, visible appearance of God. That's who Jesus is. He's God the Son with all the intimacy with God and all the glory that's in keeping with his nature. But, you know, there's a second aspect of who Jesus is. And it's he is God the man. God the man. Look with me again at verse 14. The word became flesh. He became flesh. Now this language is very strange and very powerful. It's not that Jesus sort of put on flesh like a sort of a onesie. You know, I think there was a film a few years back was it Cocoon, where there were these aliens and they were living inside a human shape? But every now and then there was something would, like a little tear would appear and a, a bit of light would gleam out. And you realize that they're not really human. They're actually aliens hiding inside a human body. If it wasn't Cocoon, someone else will tell me later, I'm sure. No, and it's not that. It's not that Jesus uh, at one time was the word and then he just changed into something different. This is a complete unity, a complete identification of the word becoming fully human. He's saying that the eternal word of God took our humanity, our creatureliness, our flesh and blood, and embraced it as his own. John Calvin wrote these words. God's son fashioned for himself a body from our body, flesh from our flesh, bones from our bones, that he might be one with us. Ungrudgingly, he took our nature upon himself, to impart to us what was his and to become both son of God and son of man in common with us. Now this week, I paid a visit to a house in Moss Side and I held a 10-pound baby boy in my arms. I was a bit nervous. I put him on my shoulder, patted him on the back. I felt I've still got it, you know. <clears throat> Managed to get a burp out of him. He looked at me, he looked a bit dopey, and then he started crying for more milk, which I wasn't able to deliver. <laughs> now, his name is Christopher Lakisa. Now, there was a time when the eternal word of God was the same size as Christopher. 
There was a time when he was utterly reliant on his mother's milk. There was a time when he was weak and helpless. He needed to be fed, dressed, and have his nappy changed. There was a time, in fact, when the eternal word of God joined himself to a woman's egg in the darkness of her womb. Now, according to the internet, the size of a woman's egg is the size of a full stop printed on your Bible page. You see that there? Size of a full stop? 0.14 millimeters. He joined himself to that. Joseph, who was engaged to Mary, had nothing to do with this. She was a virgin. It was a once, in a once in history virgin birth, and only God could have brought it about. Now, do you find that hard to believe of? Believe? Do you find it hard to conceive of? I couldn't resist a pun there. <laughs> well, join the club. Here is one of the greatest Christian intellectuals of all time, C.S. Lewis. He says that this is the central miracle, the grand miracle. Christians, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. And Lewis goes on to say, try and work out the statistic probability of whether the incarnation could have happened. You've got nothing to compare it to. The whole creation of the universe only happened once. How likely was it? You can't put a statistics on, on it. But you can say this. The creator who spoke the universe into existence is capable of this unique act of joining himself to the, egg of a, of a, the unfertilized egg of a woman and becoming a man. I don't think we're meant to understand this fully, but we are meant to wonder at it, to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Here's uh, Charles Wesley, some poetry from a hymn. Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. He laid his glory by. He wrapped him in our clay. Unmarked by human eye, the latent Godhead lay. Infant of days, he here became and bore the mild Emmanuel's name. Who is Jesus? He's God the Son and God the Man. Glorious and intimate with the Father, fully identified with our humanity. That's who Jesus is. But what's the point? What did Jesus achieve by doing this? Well, my second point is what Jesus did. And I think the main thing we learn here in John chapter 1 is that Jesus came all the way down. He came all the way down. Jesus Christ came from a great height. As the eternal Son of God, he lived for all eternity with his Father and the Holy Spirit. He was beyond time and space. And he stooped down. He became a man. He didn't exploit or reserve his glory, but he concealed it within his humanity. But he didn't stop there. He stooped even lower. He stooped down to death, even to death on a cross. Now, crucifixion was a punishment reserved for slaves and the worst of criminals. 
not for citizens of the Roman Empire, but the eternal Son of God took to himself our humanity and died upon a slave's cross. This was his humiliation. He came down, down from eternity to time, down from the heavens to earth, down to humanity, down, down even to the death of a slave. And he came with resolve. In Luke's gospel it says he set his face to Jerusalem. He stopped Peter from using his sword against the men who came to arrest him. He refused to defend himself before his prosecutors. He restrained his power, not calling on angels to rescue him. The road that he took to the cross was no accident. Suffering was not something that just happened to Jesus. It was something he did. Something he chose. No one took his life away from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He didn't come to share our victimhood. His death had a purpose. He came to lift and to carry and to bear our sins away, their guilt and their punishment. He came to drink down the cup of God's wrath until every drop was gone. That's what he did. Jesus Christ came all the way down. Now those words that I just spoke were not original to me. I found them uh, written by a theologian called Gary Williams. And I think they're the best short summary of what Jesus did. He came all the way down. What Jesus did. Well, why did he do it? The answer is he did it to give you grace upon grace. He did it to give you grace upon grace. Read with me again verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says here that this word, Jesus, lived or dwelled among us. But actually, in the original language, the writer uses a really unusual word. It's a bit of a, like a camping word. that It means pitched his tent He came and dwelled in a tent, as it were. And it's kind of an unusual word, but it's a word that calls to mind the experience of the Israelites after they were rescued from Egypt. You remember Exodus. Remember how the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh and how Moses led them out. And there they were in the wilderness and God had promised that he was going to be with them and be their God and guide them and protect them. And God came to live with them in a special tent called the tabernacle. Now, this was a bit more than your kind of canvas that you can get down at um, the camping store. This was a a very rich and and ornamented and beautifully built tent, but it still was a tent. And God said that he would come and take up his residence with his people in this tent in a special way. And it was so glorious that nobody could go into the inner chamber. But Moses wanted more than that. He wanted more. He wanted to to see God, to know God more fully. And he begged God, please let me see you. He was asking, let me see the real you. But God warned him that his presence was so holy and so overwhelming that no mortal could stand it. It would be impossible for Moses to stand in his presence. But God said, I will let you see my goodness, but just as it were passing by. So he told Moses to go and stand in a cleft in a rock, And as Moses was hiding in there, peeping through, the glory of God passed by and God revealed his nature in these words. 
He descended in the cloud and stood there and proclaimed the Lord. And this is what the Lord said. Yahweh, Yahweh, which is God's name, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And those two words in the New Testament here are carried in as grace and truth. So now we've got God living in a tent, but it's a human body. And now this Jesus who comes full of grace and truth is showing us God in a way that's never been seen before. He's full of grace and truth, full of mercy and kindness, undeserved favor to us. Full of truth, that means he's completely reliable and trustworthy. He's full of it. And verse 16 says that from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace Upon grace, in our translation here it says um, grace in place of grace. But I think it may be better to go with the idea of an accumulation. You've got grace already, now we've got grace on top of it. More and more and more. Piling on like a fountain that never runs dry. Why did he come all the way down? To give us grace upon grace because no one else could save us. No one else could save us. Because there's no salvation without a triune God. See, if God was not a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, who's going to die in our place? We wouldn't have someone. God would have to make a third party suffer. We might have to provide one of us to do it, but no one would be good enough. We'd be stumping up the substitute ourselves, and it wouldn't be possible. The cross of Jesus is only possible because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Son takes our place. Sometimes Christians present the story of the gospel like the story of a heavenly head teacher who has caught someone smoking behind the bike sheds and now is going to give them a caning. I went to grammar school, okay? We did have head teachers, and we did have caning as well in those days. But a nice classmate called Jesus comes along and takes your caning for you. So God is like a heavenly head teacher. And being a Christian is about keeping the rules and being sent home with a clean report card. But according to John, God is not a heavenly head teacher, but an eternal father, loving his son eternally. And so what kind of salvation does he offer? Not a clean report card, but the right to become a child of God, to be welcomed into the family. God wants you and me in his family He wants us to share the love that he had previously reserved for Jesus. He's given us the right to become children of God. The great Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, told a story about a king who fell in love with a humble maiden. He dreamed about her. He dreamed of winning her heart winning her love, and as men do, he began to contemplate his options. The first and most obvious strategy was the direct one. He would dazzle her. He was a king after all. He would show up with his impressive retinue of servants and hangers-on, dressed as a king in his royal robes and his crown, and display his wealth and bowl her over and announce his love. Surely that would overwhelm her. But that's just the problem. 
If she responded as he'd hoped once she'd picked herself up off the floor, how could he ever be sure, how could she ever be sure that it was really the king she loved and not just his money and his influence? And so he thought about another strategy. Instead, he would go in disguise. He would dress himself up as a beggar. He wouldn't be accompanied by attendants. No one else would go with him. With rags covering his royal robes, he would hope to woo her. But as he thought about it, he realized that this wasn't going to work either. At the best, she might fall in love with the beggar. But as soon as she realized he was a king, all bets were off. It was a disguise. It wasn't who he really was. In fact, it was a deception. He's the king. So he agonized over it and tossed and turned on his bed. And finally, he came up with a third solution. The reverse. He would elevate her to his level. He finds some secret way of transferring millions of pounds into her bank account and bestowing on her the highest aristocratic noble title. She would be brought up to the ruling classes. Fabulous wealth, nobility. And then he would approach her with the hope that she would respond in love. But even as he thought about it, he realized that there was a big danger here. That it would imply that when she was a humble maiden, she wasn't really good enough for him. She wasn't good enough for the king to love. But actually, the opposite was true. He loved her as a humble maiden. So he's completely stumped. Finally, he thinks of the, 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 the last solution, the complete solution, a radical conclusion. The only thing that will succeed is this. He would do the unthinkable. He would do that that no earthly king had ever done. He would descend from his throne empty himself of all his riches, throw away all his privilege, and in this way, he would identify with the humble maiden, not by pretending to be poor, but by becoming poor. He would share her lot. He would share her poverty. He would share her suffering. He would take the initiative and become truly equal to her. And in that way, finally, perhaps, he would be able to secure her love. And Kierkegaard writes these words. This is the unfathomable nature of love, that it desires equality with the beloved, not merely in jest, but in earnest and in truth. This is what Jesus Christ did. He loved you so much that he came all the way down, took on your nature, and died in your place. Now that is indeed grace Upon grace. Samuel Crossman wrote these words in 1664, and I think they're just as fresh today as when they were first penned 350 years ago. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they may lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed throne, salvation to bestow, but men made strange, and none the longed-for Christ would know. But oh, my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Grace upon grace, you and I are lost broken and sinful creatures, but God set his love on you.
God the Father set his love on you in eternity past. Jesus Christ joyfully obeyed the Father and came all the way down to save you, giving his life for you. And the Holy Spirit brings you that life-giving message now, today, through his word and through this community of people who have the Spirit in them, authenticating the message. You didn't earn it. You weren't good enough. You never could be. It was all of grace. Grace upon grace. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Grace piled up, a fountain of grace that never runs dry. And this grace, once you know it, is then transformational. It changes your heart. It changes your mind and your life. Because it's not about do. Do this, don't do that. It's not about that because that leads to pride and insecurity, self-defense. It's about done. It's paid for. It's about a totally different kind of life. If you'll forgive a personal illustration, my wife and I have been married 15 years. When we first met, we were head over heels. We met and married in under a year. You know what they say? Marry in haste, repent at leisure. No, no, I haven't repented. After 15 years, five children, and Manchester weather, things started to get a bit threadbare. Old habits that were originally endearing started to irritate on both sides. We were getting grumpy with each other. We were getting sharp. We were getting a bit narky. We were arguing. We were quickly raising our voices. We were quickly pointing out failure. We were actually holding grudges. Wrong was being done on both sides, and the relationship temperature was dropping like a stone. Finally, we sat down and talked it out. The great thing about my wife is she won't let things lie. We talked and talked and talked, and first of all, we were defending ourselves and being proud, and you've did this, how dare you? Eventually, we realized something very simple. We stopped dealing with each other out of grace. But once you reintroduce that, everything renews again. If you've been dealt with out of grace, you'll deal with others out of grace. Not what they deserve, but out of kindness and mercy. Favor. Great preacher Tim Keller tells a story of an influential Wall Street businesswoman who heard the Christian gospel for the first time. And as she heard it, she was a brilliant woman, she, she, she said in response, if this is, I'm afraid that this is true. I'm afraid that this is true. Because if this grace is true, then there's no limit to what God could ask of me. She accepted it, and everything changed. This is the gospel, which we have to beat into our heads continually. It's not do, but done. Who Jesus was, what Jesus did, why Jesus came to give you grace upon grace. So friends, will you live in the light of that? Will you make this the, the, the core, the center of your heart, your life, your mind, your job, your marriage, your hopes, your children's lives? Will you build everything on grace, amazing grace? How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, 
but now I see. And if you here today now realize, perhaps for the first time, that you are a wretch, that you are lost, that you are blind, but you want to trust Jesus, then please, please, please don't let it lie. Come and talk to me afterwards or talk to somebody else and pray and come to him today because his offer is open, a free offer of salvation that comes from above, from the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only God who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Great Father, we sometimes don't know what to say to you, but we just want to say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Lord Jesus, we are astonished at what you've done, how you've taken on our nature and our flesh and died in our place. We want to say thank you. Holy Spirit, we remember the day, some of us, when you first opened our eyes and made us see and that you brought us to our knees and lifted us up again to walk tall. We want to say thank you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all you've done, for your grace upon grace, and pray that we would walk in the light of it, and pray that every one of us here would be found in that grace, standing on it and not upon our own efforts, for the glory of the Son and for our good. Amen.